Welcome to the Advent Devotional Series from the Presbyterian Church in Morristown, where we explore the different ways we think about home during this time of year. If you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe, or if you have someone in your life that may be inspired by this message, please share it with them. Let's listen to how God might speak to us today, and remember to be the good in your community, a community that matters. Now, friends, uh, our reading continues uh, where Patrick left off. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Hear God's word to us on this Christmas night, Eve night. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom God favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that's taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, what they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Will you pray with me? O God, come and reign in our hearts. Settle us into the quiet expectancy that as sure as day follows night, you will come and be for us the light that shows us how to see and the wisdom that teaches us that we are always yours. Amen. A few years back, one of my favorite people in the world preached a sermon at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Have any of you heard of Brene Brown? Oh, yeah, some of you. Or maybe you're just familiar with her work. Brown is a social worker by trade, but she's also an academic. She's a researcher. She did a a TED Talk on vulnerability some years ago that has gotten something like 18 million views. She's the author of six New York Times bestsellers and two weekly podcasts on Spotify, and she has a special on Netflix. She's also a Christian, and a few years back, she preached a sermon at the National Cathedral in Washington. She says from the pulpit, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was reflecting a lot about my own faith story, which has been adventurous, shall we say. When I think about my relationship with God, I would describe it as an amazing love story. And I think if we were hanging out with another couple, they would say, wow, they still have that spark. 
After all these years, there's still passion and commitment. And I think that's true, Brown says. My relationship with church is a different story. It's been a lot rockier and a lot more difficult. I, I think if a couple were hanging out with us, me and church, they'd say, look, be together, break up, whatever. Just choose. You're making us crazy, and it's not good for the kids, so pick one. She continues on asking herself, maybe I need to go to couples therapy with church. I'm a social worker. That's what we do. And I think if we went to couples therapy, me and church, the therapist would say, what's wrong? And I would say, church is driving me crazy. I just can't do it anymore. I'm done. And the therapist would say, be more specific. And I would say, well, we need to talk about social justice and racism and homophobia and all the other isms and phobias, but, but don't get too preachy from the pulpit. <laughs> then I would say, I need church, the people at church, to be to be confident and certain and sure about God, but, but, don't be too pious. And I'm vulnerable and I'm messy and, and hard all week long. I want to go somewhere that's kind of buttoned up and exact, but, but, don't be like that because I don't trust that at church. And then the therapist would look at me and say, but what do you love about church? Is there anything you love about church? And Brown says, that's when I would completely light up. That's when I would shine so bright and say, there are things that you can get at church that you can't get anywhere else. There are things that I love and crave, and when I'm not going, I miss it, and I'm worse off for it. And if we're going to get specific about what she loves, about why she goes to church, she says that she wants to sing with strangers. Hello. And pass the peace among people who, who don't think like she does or, or act like she does or believe like she does. And then she says she wants to break bread in communion with people she doesn't know. So she says, if we're talking about the order of things, Brown says she wants to sing, shake, eat, go. And I guess that makes me wonder, what brings you here? Why have you come to church this Christmas Eve? And what are you looking for tonight? Because if I can speak from the church's side of things, we are thrilled that you are here tonight, and we are blessed by your presence. This night is about the most remarkable thing that God should and did become one of us, that at Christmas we celebrate the God of all creation being born as a baby to show us finally, once and for all, how to live our lives faithfully and righteously and in the way in which God intended for us to live. I mean, can any of us really wrap our minds around that? When I think about it, I just marvel at what that means. Yesterday, Peter Weiner wrote a column in the New York Times titled, Why Jesus Loved Friendship. 
He writes, the enduring significance of Christmas is that it represents perhaps the most distinctive feature of the Christian faith, the concept of the incarnation, the belief that God took human form in Jesus, which manifests itself in his moments of grief, agony, anger, frustration, joy, and compassion. But one particular aspect of that humanity that has long intrigued me, Wayner says, is his professed friendship with the rest of us. He writes, I understand why the relationship between an all-powerful deity and less than all-powerful human beings, between the creator and the created, the perfect and the imperfect, would be defined by, by humanities, by our awe and reverence and obedience, but a relationship with God and us, between God and me or God and you, a relationship that's defined by true friendship is startling. Why would a divine, transcendent entity referred to in the scriptures as everlasting God and the Lord Most High not only, not only condescend to become human, but also initiate a relationship with us that's defined by mutual affection and intimacy and, and self-revelation? It would have been almost unheard of for an ancient king, let alone God, to refer to his subjects as friends in any way. Especially the way that Jesus did. An earthly king would not have, would not have walked and, and lived among people the way that Jesus did. People of unequal wealth and status we're very unlikely to be friends in that, in that culture, but Jesus shattered those expectations and the hierarchy between God and human beings. And that's still how it is, right? Can you imagine any of the world's richest or most powerful people coming among the more common folk in any kind of authentic or loving way? A way that invites friendship and equity and genuine mutual concern for one another. That is what God has done. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. In her sermon at the National Cathedral, Brown says, when I was thinking about these things that I love about church, I was thinking these things don't make any sense to me at all until I started doing research on belonging. And here's what I found. Over the last 20 years, we've sorted ourselves into bunkers, into factions, with people who believe like us. And we have very little interest in people who don't believe like us. And you would think that the upside to sorting, the great part to that, is that we would be behind these barricades of ideology with our best friends ever. Except as we've sorted, she says, loneliness rates have tracked equally with sorting. So the more sorted we become, the lonelier we are. And I think behind these barricades of belief, she says, is not real connection. We just hate the same people. And hating the same people is not how we connect with each other. I don't know you. I don't particularly like you. I don't want to get to know you, but I'm just glad that you hate the same people that I do. But loneliness, she says, is a real thing. It's a real thing, and we in the church, we know it. 
It's at an all-time high. It is a health epidemic. And you think, you're lonely. It's not going to kill you. But that's wrong. Loneliness is a greater predictor of early death than smoking or obesity or excessive drinking. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus on his own is the cure for loneliness. He can fix a lot of things, but he's not going to hang out with you on a Friday night. But I also can't help but wonder if there's some correlation between a a decrease in church affiliation and an increase in loneliness. Because at its best, the church is, is probably the only place where we do sing with strangers and pass the peace among people who don't believe as we do and where we break bread with people we don't know. And maybe there's something missing when we don't have that or when we don't do that. Our lives can still be incredibly meaningful, but they can also be pretty lonely. In that piece from the New York Times, one pastor said, power cannot generate love. Power can generate obedience and fear and awe and grudging submission, but not love. And the God who comes to us in Jesus doesn't want grudging submission. He wants us to love him and to be loved by him. God wants relationship, including friendship, and so came in vulnerability, not in power. He came as a baby. The concept of a vulnerable God, meek and lowly in heart, was almost unfathomable to people at that time. And for many people, it still is. But that's the God who we celebrate at Christmas. And the invitation tonight is to hold on to that all year long. That when we gather with God's people in worship, in prayer, in songs with strangers, in breaking bread, in passing the peace of Christ in community, we find ourselves not only closer in our relationship with God, but but also with one another. We move deeper into a friendship with Jesus and with one another. Or put a different way, we live lives that are less lonely and in which we find more belonging. Which isn't to say that the church always gets it right. People more than ever are saying, church drives me crazy. I just can't do it anymore. I'm done. But for all of its flaws, this is still a place where strangers become friends. And friends become disciples who do their best to bring a little more light into this dark and hurting world who shine so bright with the hope and peace and joy and love that breaks down the barricades of our ideology. So the invitation tonight is to return, to find your place, because God needs more people shining more light into the dark places of the world. God needs more people reaching out in friendship to the ones who are so often forgotten. God needs you to be loved just for who you are and then to share that love with the world this Christmas and always. Thanks be to God, dear ones.
Amen. Thank you for listening with us today. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe. Or if you have someone in your life that may be inspired by this message, please share it with them. Visit us at www.pcmorristown.org or find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook to stay connected with our church. But most of all, remember to be the good in your community, a community that matters.